Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. The arrival of a Trump administration will mean the end of the Affordable Care Act, likely through a budget reconciliation bill early in the term. But along with ACA elements that President-elect Donald J. Trump has said he wants to keep, like guaranteed issue, expect the transition from fee-for-service toward value-based care to continue. That's what experts predicted during the discussion Oncology Care 2017, the final session of Patient-Centered Oncology Care, an annual multi-stakeholder gathering presented by the American Journal of Managed Care. The panel discussion was moderated by Dr. Bruce Feinberg, Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health Specialty Solutions. What follows is a full recording of the panel discussion. All right, we've got one more panel to go. I'd like to say that best was saved for last, but that would be insulting to all the other panelists. But I will say that you will be thrilled with this last panel. Uh, we've got a remarkable group of speakers um, who should be able to share with us lots of insights and really comment across the many different topics that we've covered in the past two days. So with that, let's bring up Dr. Robert Carlson, Chief Executive Officer, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. These are all well-known people. Dr. Carlson, uh, again, CEO of NCCN, joined the NCCN uh, in January of 2013 after an esteemed history and leadership positions with organizations most notably including acting representative to the NCCN Board of Directors, Chair of Breast Cancer Guidelines Panel, uh, member and founding chair of the Breast Cancer Risk Reduction Guideline Panel, and chair of the Survivorship Guideline Panel. Then we've also got Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb is a resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. Um, you've seen him on TV. You've uh, seen his work in the Wall Street Journal and amongst uh, many other places. Um, previously served as the FDA Deputy Commissioner for Medical and Scientific Affairs, and before that, a senior advisor to the FDA Commissioner as the FDA's Director of Medical Policy Development. He's running a bit late. We are going to start without him and razz him when he gets here. Ted Ocon, who was uh, on, the panel, on the panel earlier, uh, is back, Executive Director of COA, Community Oncology Alliance. And lastly, Kavita Patel, Managing Director of the Brookings Institute, Washington, D.C., She's a practicing primary care internist at Johns Hopkins Medicine. She served in the Obama administration as director of policy for the Office of Intergovernment Affairs and Public Engagement in the White House and a senior aide to Valerie Jarrett. Come on down. There's a lot to cover, and I was thinking, like, you know, different ways to do this. And, and to some degree, the fact that I know that some of you weren't here for the entire program, uh, it'd be good to kind of get impressions. And I was thinking about it, do I do it more kind of chronologically as these occurred um, or just kind of some random stream of consciousness and there'll probably be a combination of the two. Um, so the first comment I wanted I want to address is one that was made by Roy Beveridge that I mentioned earlier as well because it really resonated with me. But his comment was that in the era of fee-for-service, we were always looking at the ceiling. We were looking at the, the, what was the potential for the greatest amount of cost and now as we move for value-based care, we're really focused on looking at the floor. What is the minimum acceptable quality in an environment where we've now, to some extent, have perversely realigned uh, incentives to put that quality at risk? And so 
all of you are dealing with that kind of issue in different ways. And so maybe, Kavita, you started off, but I thought it was a really interesting observation that he made. And I think it's something that as we get into value-based care and healthcare reform, we've got to address that. Perfect timing. There he is. All right. Give him the raspberry. What do you want, walk-off music? <laughs> I mean, really, where's the walk-off music? Can we do a mic drop? We can start. Do you want to – you're going to go through this with all of us? Do you want to uh, – Not necessarily. It's, okay. It depends right. how you answer it. Okay. It depends on how I answer it. So I'll, I'll, I'll just say I didn't hear Roy speak about this. Um, we've been looking over, like, the last kind of three years at – payment models in general, and with the exceptions in both commercial and kind of the public setting, with Medicare kind of being the one that uh, takes up a lot of the conversation in cancer care, and very few of them have come off of like that fee-for-service kind of base. So, and then even when quality, I would just argue that when we look at kind of how quality gets incorporated into payment models, at least the ones that are out there in the real world being implemented, Quality measures are a little bit all over the place. They're hard for even the insurers, including Medicare, to really put their arms around when it comes to cancer care. I assume that's what we're concentrating on. Well, no, but you bring up a great point. So, so one of my challenges when that happened, um, and, and so Roy was the last speaker before we went to break and had drinks and food. So <laughs> I chose not to ask this question. but. I, I think to some degree, those kind of quality metrics are pretty straightforward in a primary care population right. where you're focused on right. chronic disease, and you can look right. at hemoglobin A1Cs Correct. and blood, blood pressure control. And right. right. Um, but it's very different when you're dealing with life-threatening diseases that have these you know, raging episodes. Well, and also life-threatening diseases that are by nature, I mean, you, you've got, you, we have several physicians here, you have a, a bona fide oncologist here, you have complexities of how you describe that disease from a from an administrative standpoint. So just to kind of put a finer point on it, you know, we don't even really have TNM staging kind of as part of how we think about administrative claims, yet those are the same claims that we have to rely upon to extract kind of how we think about quality measures. So we had a conversation previously about IT and having problems getting data out of like our EMRs and that same holds for getting even more robust clinical data. So I, I would say that we're still a ways off from getting to this kind of, you know, evolution from, you know, to quality and value in a, in a real sense. And, and, and that's, is it, is it, you know, people have asked me, like, is that good, is it bad? I said, it's, it's neither, it's just what it is. So in oncology, we have to actually acknowledge that it's, you know, everybody likes to say, oh, it's different, it's complex. It really is complex, and we have to actually incorporate that into the payment models in a more meaningful way, and that's, that's, that has not been done. So, so can I comment on, on your, your initial question? I was actually going to go to you anyway. Three comments. Um, one is that I'm not so sure that fee-for-service is the ceiling because fee-for-service doesn't guarantee quality care at all. And um, actually, I think you could, you could argue in many circumstances, the less you do, the better the quality of care. Um, simple things are often well done and very effective. So um, ceiling and floor, I'm not sure, is, is the analogy that I would have chosen. I didn't hear uh, Roy's uh, presentation. I, if you're going to be in a circumstance, though, where you're talking about a bundle payment or something like that where you're, you're concerned about the floor being inadequate resources delivered to a patient, uh, the simple solution, and this will surprise all of you coming from me, is guidelines. 
uh, or, uh, or, or, or pathway systems where uh, you, you have a, a, a set of expectations that define what quality care is. Um, and then you measure people against that using the IT systems that we heard about in the last panel, hopefully, uh, when, they, when they come to fruition. But the third thing that I would, I would comment about, and I'm, I'm shocked that I haven't heard it mentioned at all today yet, is you can't have quality of care if you don't have access. And um, with the change in administration that's going on, um, I'm concerned about access. Um, my expectation is that when the ACA is repealed, which it sounds like it almost certainly will be, or if not repealed, um, rebranded. All right, the mic's uh, already in Scott's uh, hand. It's that, sweating now. That, so. that, 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 that hopefully we can demand and our political leadership will come together uh, and assure that the 20 million people who have gotten access under the ACA will continue to have access and that the uh, increase in benefits that others have received, you know, no prior uh, ability to exclude based upon prior diagnosis and so on, that, that those components of the ACA will survive the rebranding uh, or, or the transition. Um, because if you don't have access, you can't have quality health care. And, and lack of access is, the, is probably, arguably, the worst healthcare system that we can have. So um, I, I, I'm shocked, and we have Scott and Kavita here, so I'm really interested. All right, and, Scott. And, and Ted, in terms right. of. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I would, I've obviously been a critic of the Affordable Care Act, and I would argue that the Affordable Care Act has afforded um, access, but not, not a level of access that in, in some cases was um, sufficient for certain kinds of patients. I think the advent of very narrow networks and narrow formularies and closed drug formularies with very high deductibles, which was a structure, the preferred structure in the Affordable Care Act, in part to accommodate a lot of the other costly regulation, um, you know, isn't in some cases true access for an oncology patient. And those are the trade-offs that were made. I mean, they, they mandated coverage for certain things and allowed, allowed looser structures around other things like drug formularies, where you see closed drug formularies in the Affordable Care Act. But, I'm not here to criticize the Affordable Care Act. I think what I th my my hunch is what's going to happen is in January the House um, will pass the FY uh, 2017 budget with reconciliation instructions for the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, and they don't necessarily have to do a facsimile of the reconciliation measure that they already passed that they sent to the President's desk that was vetoed. They could um, try to amend that. I don't believe that they're going to cut the cost-sharing subsidies or any of the subsidies in, in the measure, and they're going to extend them probably out for two years, so through 2018, to allow themselves a two-year period to try to come into the market with some kind of replacement mechanism. And my hunch would be um, that replacement isn't going to be another major health care bill, but a series of bills that are targeted towards groups of patients who are disadvantaged in the current, in the current marketplace. It raises the interesting question, and a lot of people who support the Affordable Care Act have been crying into their keyboard over the last week. Uh, I'm on some of the listservs, and Kavita's on some of the listservs as well that I'm, I'm talking about, that if you do that, you destabilize the market in such a way. So you basically leave in place Title I, which is all the insurance market reform, guaranteed issue, community rating, the three-to-one age-based rating. Um, but, you, but if people know the exchanges are going to be going away in 2018, a lot of the plans are going to pull out of the exchanges. I don't necessarily believe that's the case for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
The managed carry HMO is already signaling to investors, if you read the analyst reports, that they're going to stay in the market through 2018 and wait and see what happens. I think the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans will stay in the market as well. Um, a lot of the other plans that w entered the market, you look at plans like Oscar, have been losing money. They might use this as an excuse to get out of the market or transition to a Medicare Advantage products, but they were going to get out of the market um, anyway. And I think that the administration will have an opportunity to pass regulation early on that will provide a lot of uh, potential relief to the plans to continue to stay in the market. Um, I think a lot of the regulations that the The Obama relief they denied in the last administration. Excuse me? The relief that they denied in the last administration. Well, I mean, it's a good point because I think that there was a lot of what they did in regulation in the current administration um, was a compromise between trying to grow the market quickly or trying to provide for a more stable market. Um, there were a lot of things done that erred on the side of trying to grow the market more quickly, even at the, the expense of doing things that made the market more difficult for commercial plans to operate in. So I think they've left a lot of opportunity for an, the new administration to come in and say, we are going to pass regulatory reform that's going to provide for lower costs and a more competitive market. You can change the definition of essential health benefits. You can change the definition of what qualifies for a qualified health plan. You can loosen the actuarial ratings um, on the plans. There's a lot of things. Um, you can you end special enrollment periods. You can end third-party sponsorship of insurance, which will um, help with selection. There might even be ways to go into the market with some some money to provide targeted subsidies to certain pools of patients, so to create some some form of a high-risk pool within the exchanges. Um, there's some creative thinking around that that kind of an idea as well. So I think that there is a way. There are ways from an administrative regulatory standpoint to go in and try to stabilize the exchanges um, so that this could work. Now the then the question, the million-dollar question, is: So, do the Repu are the Republicans able to pass legislation that addresses what are problems with our insurance market as a replacement to the Affordable Care Act, and hopefully do it on a bipartisan basis that's enduring, and you don't just get this flip-flop every time the political environment changes? And that's a bigger question. I think the answer to that is yes. I'm hopeful. <laughs> there are obviously going to be a lot of skeptics. All right, Kavita, you want to? Responded all to that? Uh, I'll just, I mean, I actually agree from like a process standpoint that it won't be that exact reconciliation. But I, I think that they, any any staff would tell you that what they put in that, they knew the president was going to veto and that if they had to live with those decisions, it would just not be feasible. So I, I absolutely expect it. I was thrown for a bit of a loop that they're going to do an extension on the, that they're going to do a CR package just till March. So I don't know how much this changes like the timing the house will do something but i don't know what you know it, it, it i don't know if it matters that you know now we've got this weird like extension till march and no it won't and they've got yeah, to do all right so i don't want to lose anybody so cr extension so sorry. um so we we don't have a budget passed everybody knows that and uh it's why we're in this constant like not not just the sequester but a constant turmoil of you know, these little patchworks to actually run the federal government. Um, Democrats and Republicans had anticipated that before the end of this Congress that there would be a longer-term kind of budget package that could get put forward. Just yesterday, uh, House Republicans, Senate Republicans, and I think with the Trump transition team, all kind of, Paul Ryan at least came out, in a, Speaker Ryan came out in agreement saying that they would pass just a patch of an extension to run the federal government that would go through March of 2017. And so I, I, what I, I had 
I agree with everything Scott said. I didn't know if the timing would change because of this strange, like, four-month patch, that you know, three-month patch that they're doing. Having said that, Democrats are going to do everything that they can. Short, there's really not much power that they have if you can pass a repeal with 51 votes, which is exactly what will likely happen in the Senate, and obviously pass through the House and have a President Trump sign it. So, so many of the audience have been reading in the media that 51 votes for a defunding, but 60 votes for a repeal. So, so it's explain, not a explain that distinction. So, so it's go ahead, Ted. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's 51 votes when it basically is <coughs> under reconciliation, which has to do with financing pieces. Basically, when you're talking about other things, you're talking that don't have direct, in layman's terms, don't have direct financing uh, implications, budget implications. Then you're talking about needing 60 votes because you know it's not the old. Um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of filibuster, uh, but basically they can filibuster, so you need 60 votes. Now I'll go back to something that Scott said, and I actually think that when they start pulling this apart, and there is a need for some aspects in terms of the law changing uh, on, on a bipartisan basis, um, I think there's a good chance on some of these aspects it will, because the, the, the numbers are this, in two years, there are 25 Democrats, technically tw 23 Democrats and the two independents of caucus with the Democrats that are in the Senate that are up for election. There are only seven Republicans. So the Senate Democrats are looking at just a, you know, tsunami coming at them, and those Democrats are going to be under extreme pressure uh, if this thing starts dismantling for the worse, and you have problems of actually getting on board to pass. So getting, um, you know, eight of those 25 on board to basically get the 60 votes necessary to put something through the Senate. And, and I think there's a good chance on some of that that is going to happen. That, you know, the, the other piece of that is, and to, to Kavita's point, the, the original bill they passed the reconciliation bill they passed to repeal Obamacare with 50 votes didn't touch what's called Title I of the bill, which was all the insurance right. market reforms. They did that to get it through the parliamentarian because the presumption was that those insurance market reforms were policy that didn't have a budgetary impact. They could go back and challenge the parliamentarian on that because this administration has argued that those that Are the whole bill is, right. is, is uh, every part of the bill is essential and every part has a budgetary impact. They argued that before the Supreme Court. And right. they wouldn't go after community rating and guaranteed issue, but what they would go after potentially is a three-to-one age-based rating, which would have a big impact on the market and cause probably a downward inflection in pricing, not just in the exchanges, but also in the in the um, employer-provided segment, the individual market. So you could see um, reform that actually causes a one-time downward pressure on pricing, just like the implementation of these measures causes a one-time inflection. Um, an upward inflection in pricing. And then I'll bring it back for cancer patients if you <laughs> want to bring it back to just the, not the original, original question, but I would say to, to Bob's point, don't forget about the Medicaid expansion and the number, I mean, just in terms of when people criticize the Affordable Care Act, a lot of people have criticized kind of what we, when you look at the individual exchanges, the people that are in the exchanges have a very striking similarity clinically to a Medicaid population. And in fact, some have argued that what we need to do is probably manage the individual market a little bit more, more like managed care Medicaid. 
whatever that's worth, I think that if the Medicaid expansions were to change and the idea of block grants or some other alternative have come up, that that could create disruptions in access as well, potentially. So, I, and, and governors, there are a lot of newly minted as well as current kind of governors of both colors in states that have chosen to expand and in states that have chosen not to expand. Well, and they're so, dealing so with Georgia, well, I, you know, Georgia didn't expand, which put 800,000 plus into the ACA, into the individual market. And, and so one could argue that you know, part of that solution could be pressure for those governors who didn't to expand. I just want to remark in that in, in some states, Medicaid is really a little bit of pulled gold insurance. Um, yes, it's helpful, but I can tell you some horror stories in terms of access because um, it's tough sometimes to get that provider who will take Medicaid. And then what's happening as the states are feeling the pinch because the federal subsidies have come off, same access as everybody else. Right, but, but I'm not hearing in any of the plan what's going to improve access. So I hear all the things that put access at risk. I'm not hearing solutions that are going to improve access, which was Bob's original kind of concern here. Well, access or the quality of the coverage, I mean, there's, there's two different things. We, we could provide for broader access to insurance, but not provide for broader access to high-quality oncology care. Well, I'm not sure. What is broader access to worthless care? I mean, but the, I mean that's what – so I lived in the era where we had that, and patients came in for cancer care, and they had a worthless policy, a policy that only covered inpatient, didn't cover outpatient, but you couldn't do the chemo inpatient, or policies that had such a huge you know, uh, component of their responsibility because of, of ridiculous caps that it was essentially being but uninsured. But you could argue in some states Medicaid – I don't want to say is worthless, but is a very poor quality benefit. It's very poor quality. Right. So, it's depending but, on right. the state. But, yeah, but, no, getting, but, getting, right. but getting back to that point, so is there anything in the, in the discussion? So we all, you know, there's all about repeal and repeal and repeal. There's very little about what replace looks like, but we're not hearing what are those solutions. We heard it on the during the campaign, you know, which is that kind of everyone, you know, the dignity for everyone. And but we're not hearing about what actually that solution is. Well, I think, I think you are. I mean, if you look at some of the replacement plans from the political right, they, they, they look at constructs like providing everyone with a basic tax, tax subsidy that would allow for a richer, catastrophic plan, um, but not cover a lot of the routine primary but if, care but services. But you're not making enough to have any substantial tax. And try to couple it with an HSA where people can say, save, pro provide, provide income targeted subsidies for low-income individuals. There's trade-offs. I'm not, I'm not arguing that there's not going to be trade-offs, but when you have a plan that doesn't cover, you know, only covers four out of 12 drugs for multiple sclerosis, which is the, the analysis that I did a lot of the affordable crack plans, but, but provides first dollar co coverage of 
surgical sterilization, maybe we're not prioritizing right, and right now that, are the, that is the Affordable Care Act. You, you get first dollar coverage for surgical sterilization, but most, most of the plans will not cover more than five of the drugs that are required for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, the, the silver plans. So that's the trade-off we've made. All right, so um, I don't have a clock, or I'm already out of time, and although the, I've been very engrossed in this conversation, I can't believe we've used up our time. <laughs> so can I get a clock? All right, thank you. Um, all right, so changing gears a little bit um, in terms of you know what, what should be covered and how it should be covered and trying to address the questions about waste that's in the system, um, and much of which is due to variance. So, Bob, you've been involved with NCCN now. This is, you know, you, you've, it, it, is, it has become the gold standard of determination for coverage for almost every payer, commercial payer, uh, at least level one through 2A, if not level one through 2B. Um, you referenced earlier about now, NCCN isn't further distinguishing preferred versus non-preferred. When does NCCN become the national standard pathway with preferred only regimens. Because you're mentioning five, and I'm thinking maybe five is enough treatments from MS. Maybe you don't need more than five. Um, but, but, I wanna, but if we're gonna, you know, we talk about much of the criticism for ACA was it didn't address access, but it didn't address cost. And so as we move into that, and we have to think about how we're gonna start to address cost, the pathway seems to be a way to do that. And we heard earlier, when we heard from Blue Cross Horizon that they're not implementing the pathway, and you can at some point push that out as we start to look at whether we agree with the floor or not, but what is gonna be that quality, acceptable quality of care without having some guideline, some pathway that says these are acceptable and anything other than that is not. Um, how close are you at NCCN to taking that next step? Well, first of all, I've never seen an analysis that using a pathway rather than a guideline saved cost or saved dollars. Um, there, all the studies that have been done looking at cost, either looking at guidelines, which most of the analyses have been done, or pathways show that both decrease cost. And Lee Newcomer published a, a paper, I think just last month, uh, looked at a clinical decision support system that used the NCCN guidelines as the metric, uh, as, as the determinant, and, and that decreased uh, drug spend by 9% when it went up in the surrounding community in areas where United did not have that system in place by 11%. So it was a 20% reduction in drug spend uh, just by using a fairly permissive guideline. Um, so I, I think that we're, we, we have that capability already. Uh, we at NCCN are moving our guidelines. Some of the guidelines have had it for a long time, but others are developing it now where there are preferred and other regimens. And the preferred regimens are the regimens that should be used the vast majority of the time. And they would typically be the regimens that you would find on a pathway, um, a, a pathway system. Um, and it's also likely that we will actually develop, tiering is the word, that it's, it's, it's complicated, but where we would have you know, highly preferred or this is, this is what you should use. Uh, these are other regimens that are reasonable to use in special circumstances and then a, a third group where, you know, there's evidence to support these, but they should be used rarely. Um, and, and that would be more of a pathway-ish way if you looked at the, the top sort of category of, uh, of, of recommendations. And the advantage of our system also is that it, it's not only, it doesn't only look at drugs. You know, most pathway systems look at drug spend only. Um, we look at surgery, we look at radiation oncology, we look at um, uh, 
diagnostics. So it's a, it's a more comprehensive look at that. So Scott, I would say that in a free market, you probably wouldn't want to have a standardized national pathway system. Uh, you probably would, I would think a free market would take issue with that. Um, and yet, there's also that, that discomfort with everybody's kind of figuring out their own way. And it could, could it possibly be the best thing for patients? Um, well, I, I, think, I think in a free market, you'd want to have competing plans have the discretion to adopt different structures, including adopt close adherence to pathways in certain therapeutic settings. That's the idea of a free market, that you have a lot of different plans that have different structures with respect to how they approach insurance. They have the freedom to offer plans of different actuarial value, and they're transparent to consumers about what the actuarial value of the plan is. And consumers have the ability to opt for lower cost versus higher cost plans and, and make determinations about what they're going to pay. I mean, you know, part of, and again, I, I don't want to make this a criticism of the ACA, but we're, we're, we're looking at where we are right now and, and, and where we might end up. You know, one of the things that the ACA did was create very rigid structures around what the actuarial value of the different metal plans had to be on the presumption that it would be too confusing for patients to decouple what it meant for a plan to have a different actuarial value, so they tried to tie it very closely to the, to the metals, where you couldn't range very far from the metals in terms of what the actuarial, actuarial value was up or down. So what happened was the plans basically determined what the benefits would look like by creating an actuarial value and then backing the benefits into it, as opposed to starting with what an optimal benefit package looks like and then determining at the end what the actuarial value was. The c kinds of things he's talking about require more flexibility. And that's what you'd see, I think, in a true free market, which we don't obviously have. And I think just from the standpoint of benefit negotiation, there's you saw it with California, with the Covered California Exchange, a little bit more of an active exchange marketplace where it wasn't so beholden to the plan's tiers, but it was a much more, I mean, California was probably, it still is kind of ahead of its time, but I would say that what surprised us in the White House was we, we knew that not every state would be ready to stand up something where they could even be prepared to have their own exchanges. We were shocked at how poorly the majority of the country was at even setting up a base exchange, much less what we had hoped for, which would be an active exchange that could do a little bit more of what you were talking about, where it's not so beholden to just what's actuarially valued but a state could kind of come and say, here are some of the benefits that we would like to actually prioritize and we would like to explore, even within the tiers of the metal plans, how to actually adopt some of these kind of benefit design principles, value-based, you can call them whatever you want, but that's a little bit more of what California had kind of tried to do. So Democrats in general, um, I think, were a little bit kind of despondent when we saw over the year, last several years that more and more states that we thought would be able to stand up their own successful exchanges were not able to do so. And I think that that points to some of the kind of fundamental flaws of, you know, allowing like, a you know, 50, 50 flowers to bloom without having a sense of what capacities people are ready for with active enrollment and things like that. So I, I, would, I would just say that to kind of go back to cancer care and guidelines, I would argue that if you look at most commercial plans, that there's not even, I, I, I wouldn't even argue that we need a single standard kind of, I, I would, it would be great just to have some fundamental 
kind of adherence or compliance or participation in some guideline-based activity be an essential requirement and then allow for people to choose based on, and, and we see that with some of the commercial insurers, they're actually allowing for people to kind of choose several options, United published this data, everybody's got something. I think it's ironic that in the Medicare program, we have nothing, and, and when we've started to do something, it's kind of under an experimental pilot to even ask people to demonstrate that they've incorporated, quote, evidence-based guidelines. This so would have been, uh, oh, wait, wait, so no, it's now been 30 minutes and Ted Ocon has not spoken. <laughs> that is the power of this panel. So we we got to give Ted a chance. I mean, he may just explode. Spontaneous combustion in that chair. Right. We haven't talked about 340p. That's, I knew it already was going to be. So, so I have a couple of, of, of comments of being a free market guy. First of all, you shouldn't have insurers that are dictating specific pathways. I love the fact that we have the NCCN guidelines. We have authoritative evidence-based medicine. And I don't even think, Vita, that we need to have people even saying, tick the box that you had, you did evidence-based, you used evidence-based medicine, measuring. Let them, let them be free. Don't give the, I talked about this in the morning in the, in, the, in the panel when I was standing in for you. Don't let this constant process, 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 dictating everybody what to do. Literally give them the tools to do it, including having the guidelines, let them develop in practice their own pathways, but then measure it on the back end. Measure the quality, measure the you know value, the quality and the cost. Uh, what I hate is this constant dictating of telling physicians what they should use, how they should use, because they have authoritative guidelines, and then let the dictation of, of the processes put that aside and measure them. Let doctors be doctors. And I'm sitting here because I'm definitely the non-physician of the, of the uh, five individuals sitting up here. So, so let me agree with Ted and, and to put it in, into is this, a, this isn't a first, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> no we, 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 actually, we actually usually Just agree. the way you prefaced it, I wanted to, all right. Um, so if you have nine different pathway programs in the same practice, you actually increase the probability of variability in the care. That's right. Um, because you have, you're, you're, you're being told to do A and B and C and D, as opposed to if you have a more permissive list, most physicians will pick one or two regimens that they will use all the time. And, and so pathways, paradoxically, if there are too many of them, actually increase variation rather than decrease variation. So it's a great observation, but it does get back to that earlier question and point, which is at some point if the evidence has all been reviewed, and the, the, the foremost experts in the land have looked at it, and they've decided that three of them rise above the rest. Why are we not all doing the three? And why should that not become a national standard? And at some point, there's a logic that's inescapable where the free market just doesn't make sense. That why, freedom. Why? Huh? Why, do you, why do you need to dictate that? Let them basically. Let them why, use then why, the why should we allow inferior care? Why should we allow patients to get harmed? Well, well wait a minute. I said measure it. I said after they're harmed, after they're harmed. Well, you know, Bruce, that's part of measure it and basically let that patient know. Guess what? You have a physician that won't be practicing anymore or people that won't go. They will be held accountable for. That's the, that's the difference. I see when we deal with in with healthcare, that's my question. Do you allow the harm to occur 
and do that and, and do it after the fact as opposed to the well it may that harm may have to occur the first time but the whole idea is root out the system so that physicians coming in will realize that they're going to be measured basically they're going to be measured and don't do the harm because you should be using evidence but don't dictate to them my problem is we are in, in a lot of the things that are doing we are dictating to physicians what to do and how to practice. Part of my problem, Kavita knows this, we talk about this all the time, with the oncology care model, is there's a lot of dictation, and it's dictation around process. It's not around patient care. The other problem here, Bruce, is that we're, we're talking about a field that evolves very quickly. I mean, it might be one thing to, to, to try to impose a standard when it comes to hip replacements, um, but it's quite different when you're talking about regimens that are evolving very quickly. Um, and certainly you don't want to do it on the time frame of a, of a notice of proposed rulemaking <laughs> to your time frame. Uh, but even, even, even the, the independent guidelines don't get written, don't get updated constantly. There's a cycle towards updating them that don't allow doctors to incorporate the latest information as quickly as perhaps they would. So Scott certainly gave me an opening there. I, I, I'm waiting. You know, it's so, so the NCCN guidelines are, are updated at least annually. Many of them go through five or six versions per year. And um, we track FDA new drug approvals. If a new drug gets approved, uh, the panels typically look at it in advance of the actual the, the on-the-shelf date. And our, our guidelines and compendia are typically updated within two weeks of it becoming available. And our, our record, we can actually do it in 24 hours if it's compelling enough and, and have done it in 24 hours. And how about in response to data that's um, suggests different uses of drugs for off-label. You, you know, you're updating as quickly for the. For oh, that. absolutely. And, and in fact, I, I would argue that FDA has the label and we have the off-label. <laughs> no, seriously, <laughs> seriously. Uh, I, I think that's the reality. And, and you know, and the, the, we're talking about pathways and, 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 and so forth. But I think the NCCN guidelines now are arguably already the national de facto standard. Um, most yeah. most of the pathways yeah. come off of our guidelines. As, as, a, as a starting point. So we're sort of there. So I think we're sort of agreeing that if you, if you use a guideline that's a permissive guideline, which ours are, um, that you you use that as a standard, but then you do have to, I agree fully, you've got to measure outcome. Well, and within the practice environment, I've seen this over and over again, Bruce Gould does it. Within the practice environment, basically using their guidelines and using the shared decision-making of the practice, in this case 22, 22 oncologists, they arrive at decisions that are more, are, that are tighter pathways as opposed to guidelines. I think that's, that's the, to me, there's a lot of free market to that. Don't, but don't dictate somebody should do this and do it this way and do it this way. Basically measure it on the back end. All right. Opinions heard. Um, this is a patient-centered focus con conference. I want to end with that topic. Um, so, Scott, you alluded to that comment in regard to um, the insurance marketplace and, and let, let there be transparency so the buyer knows what it is they're purchasing. You could even argue the buyer beware if they're buying a policy that really doesn't cover uh, what they may need because we don't tend to think of what we don't have as a problem. We tend to only think of the problems we do have. Um, but that would suggest this understanding of what that is they're being offered. And yet we know that if you include in the determination of health literacy, numeracy, and problem solving, that two-thirds 
of the U.S. population is low literacy. So it, it seems to be noble to want to say that individuals should be making these judgments for themselves, but all the evidence says they're not capable of making those judgments. So it gets back to kind of solving for that problem in an era where we're trying to be more patient-centered. So on the one hand, you want to say we're patient-centered, you're the patient, you make the decision, but the data says they're not capable of making those decisions. So open to the panel. How do we, how do we start to struggle and deal with that? I don't, I, don't think, I don't think there's a way of formalizing or dictating that. I think that if you look at cancer, you know there's Bruce from practicing. You know, you rarely see one individual there. You have that individual that's with a couple of people um, that are caregivers in terms of family members. I think the other thing is, and I see this in a lot of the top practices, certainly the ones that I would want to go into, there is a there is a nurse navigation function. Now, it's not some people object to having dedicated nurse navigators, but they believe it should be within the practice where there's a facilitation and there is that um, there is that expertise. If they don't have it, they can't make it. They can't go on the Google. They can't look at you know what their options are. And don't, ha and don't have a family member, a grandmother who doesn't have a son that's uh, a little bit more astute, maybe even a doctor, that they can basically get that help within the practice environment. And, and I, I, I see that over and over, especially as the complexity of the decisions, because the complexity of cancer care changes or gets more complex. Look, I, I, think, I think we've presumed exactly what you've just stated, a very low literacy level on the part of consumers and an inability to d differentiate from different benefits and different benefit designs, and that's led us towards a path uh, of cookie-cutter types of insurance options and very tight um, actuarial banding that doesn't allow for experimentation and benefit design. Um, and you're right, there are going to be consumers who are confused by the options. There are consumers, nobody chooses their health benefit plan, a few people do based on how comprehensive the coverage is for oncology. No one thinks they're going to get cancer. Um, they choose it based on a lot of the coverage for the primary care services. But I think the tools for helping consumers make those decisions and differentiate the different value and what it means for a plan to have a different actuarial value have actually gotten much better. And healthcare.gov actually does a really good job of this where it lets you put in hypothetical scenarios and see what's covered and what your out-of-pocket is going to be. So I think that there are tools for educating consumers to enable them to make better decisions in this regard. And we shouldn't try to regulate towards the consumer who's going to going to be confused in the market. I think we need to regulate towards uh, a more average consumer who's capable with the right tools and the right education of making these kinds of decisions, or else we're going to end up exactly where we are with a one-size plan in the market, which is effectively what we have right now, at least within the ACA. Anybody else? I'll, I'll just add that this was exactly why you saw every year kind of the administration trying to add some sort of like navigation function, or they call them enrollment assistants, enrollment assisters. They were trying to kind of foster what I think you're hitting on, which is that we have a very low health literacy rate in the country. People still don't understand copayments, deductibles, and and so walking people through that process is incredibly complex. But we know that that makes a huge difference on the front end, and unfortunately, we only have. You know, there was a lot of there is a lot of criticism of these special enrollment periods, and there are people that feel that these things are being abused. But what we know is that people have a lot of employ in this country, especially as we're moving to kind of a more on-demand 
Uber type economy, we see a lot more people who are enrolling in insurance outside of these kind of what we're in right now, which is our enrollment period. And so we need to have kind of this constant focus on health insurance literacy from all sorts of people. I've, I, I still practice and I've never seen more people asking me about how they buy insurance and it's been over the last several years and I think it speaks to the complexity of trying to even navigate what you're describing. And we have a lot of inconsistencies on both sides. We have provider directories that providers themselves don't keep accurate. We have, you know, so even when- uh, The story of the week, which is the hospitals which are in network correct. for the ER doctors and, who are not. And, and that's a very, you know, so surprise billing. I mean, we have so many of these issues that whether somebody repeals this and replaces it, those are the kinds of things that the rubber hits the road and creates really hard decisions for patients that, I, I agree with Scott, I rarely meet a patient that plans to get cancer and then all of a sudden they find out that they're surprised by the lack of a network or the surprise when they do get the bill from where they thought they were in network and that's really unconscionable. And those are things that are not necessarily going to be federally regulated per se unless we have a more comprehensive view of how we buy or kind of acquire health care coverage. So with all the changes that are likely to happen, is value-based care here for good? Yes. Yes. That's last word. Right side of the aisle, <laughs> left side of the aisle. Yes, yes, yes. It's just a matter of how we implement it and go about it. But I think that, uh, I think that everybody wants value and more value in so MACRA had was 92 to 8 in favor on the vote. Um, so yeah. it sounded like it was incredible bipartisan, but it's got to be funded. I, look, I think, I think that the, the payment reforms are likely to continue. This is a secular trend. I think perhaps the regulations will get revisited, but not in, in, a, in a fashion that's going to be a wholesale departure from where CMS currently is. You know, maybe there'll be some more runway given to smaller practices, some, some more relief. The only curiosity is that if you do repeal the Affordable Care Act in Title III, the value-based purchasing program that applies to hospitals was in that title and wasn't recodified as part of MACRA. So that would potentially go away. And so there'll be implications for the programs that fall under that. But the other components were all recodified within MACRA. All right. Thanks, everybody. A hand for the panel.